Welcome to the Fern Podcast, As the Season Turns. Released on the first of the month, each episode will follow the changing landscape of the seasons, from the moon and the stars to the tides and the trees. I'm Leah Lainders, author of The Almanac, A Seasonal Guide, and this podcast is a collaboration between myself and Fern, makers of small-batch organic perfume, who blend, barrel-age and bottle four fragrances a year, released at the equinoxes and solstices. To say thank you for following along, each month the first 12 listeners who sign up to the Fern waiting list will receive a box of delicious organic Fern tea with their first bottle. Search fern.co forward slash podcast tea or find the link in the podcast description to sign up. We hope that this brief guide to the month ahead will awaken you to the rhythms of the year and help you to settle deeper into the seasons. The Sunrise On the 1st of February, the sun rises at 7.55am in Padstow in Cornwall, while up in Inverness in Scotland, it rises at 8.18am. The very observant and those with a head for numbers might notice how those numbers are squeezing closer together month by month, with Padstow's sunrise 25 minutes earlier than it was on January the 1st, but Inverness's a whole 40 minutes earlier. Later on, Inverness will overtake Padstow. By midsummer, when a good portion of sunshine spills over the North Pole, creating the Arctic Circle's midnight sun, Inverness will have an hour and a half more daylight each day than Padstow. And so our far north is now rushing to catch up with our far south, and the difference begins to be noticeable this month, at least in the numbers. The 2nd of February brings Candlemas, the official conclusion of the Christmas Epiphany season, and the day on which Christians bring their candles to church to be blessed. For most of us, February also happens to be the last month when breakfast time is dark enough to light candles. If you've never done this, it might sound faintly ridiculous, an activity associated with calm and quiet, meeting the headlong rush of the pre-school or pre-work rush around. But consider giving it a go. It takes no time to strike a match and light a candle or two, and provides a moment of magic and calm at the beginning of even the dullest and most prosaic of days, and can even calm morning hordes of children. It reminds you that you deserve your every day to be full of special moments. This is also a very good month for watching the sunrise. For most of us, January's is too late and March's may be just a tad too early. This is the perfect moment to wrap up and brave the outside with your morning cup of tea and greet the sun as it rises. In the Pond After a winter of peace and quiet in the pond, it will leap into riotous, libidinous life in February. Not at the beginning of the month, though. Peering into the pond, you could be forgiven for thinking that nothing much is going on down there in the still, cold depths. Plant growth is beginning, though. The shoots of bulrush or reed mace begin to vigorously push up out of the water early in the year. 
They were traditionally harvested on St. Bridget's Eve, the 31st of January, and their leaves made into crosses with woven square centres for St. Bridget's Day on the 1st of February, when they were hung over doors to protect the home from harm. But the main attractions this month are the frogs and toads. A slight increase in temperature will signal to the frogs hibernating in and around the pond that it is time to wake up and begin feeding on the grubs and insects in the pond to fatten up. Toads are more adapted to life on land than frogs, but they must return to their home pond to breed. And this, across much of the UK and Ireland, is the month they move, many making long and dangerous migrations, risking their lives crossing roads and whatever obstacles are in their way. And all to partake in a great frenzy of breeding late in the month. Both toads and frogs take to the pond, with the male climbing onto the female's back and holding her tight in a sexual embrace known as amplexus, his front legs grasped around her to hold on, while he uses his back legs to shove away the many competing males. The male is actually just holding the female in an embrace so that he will be the closest to her when she lays her eggs into the water, which is when he will deposit his sperm and fertilise the eggs. The breeding season lasts 12 to 24 days, but there is a climax of 3 to 7 days when the male's night chorus, a sort of purring noise with croaks and whistles, reaches its height, often under a full moon. In the herbarium, the writer sharpens her pencil. She opens a book, begins to run her fingers under the lines. Outside, beneath a gnarled old oak, a sea of nodding white flowers. Fair Maids of February is one apt name for snowdrops, bringing light into the gloom of late winter and hope for lengthening days. Their Latin name, Galanthus nivalis, is just as sweet, meaning milk flower of the snow. But their folklore has a dark side too, evoked by one Somerset name, Death's Flower. To bring snowdrops into the house, or even as far as the doorstep, was to invite ill fortune, or at the very least to risk souring the milk in the pail. Since their drooping heads swiftly wither after picking, they are perhaps best left to light the woodland floor where they grow. Snowdrops are known in some counties as Candlemas bells, since they bloom at Candlemas. This Christian festival arrives hot on the heels of the ancient Gaelic festival of Imbolc, which marks the midpoint between the winter solstice and the spring equinox. Both are celebrations of light over dark. At the Marsden Imbolc festival, the green man wins a fight against Jack Frost, which to me evokes the triumphant snowdrop peeking through the snow to promise spring. It's a tradition to divine the coming weather on Imbolc, which is the day when the Kaliach, the divine hag of Gaelic mythology, gathers her firewood for the rest of the winter. If winter will be long and she needs plenty of wood, she will make the day dry and bright. Imbolc also belongs to Bridget, the pagan goddess and later Christian saint, for whom dollies and crosses were made out of rushes. 
These might be given a bed to sleep in or hung above the door to ward off evil spirits. Bridget's blessing cleansed and purified, which is beautifully echoed in the white purification ceremonies found in Shropshire and Hampshire, in which snowdrops were carried into the house and broke the flower's taboo of bad luck. February's Islands, the Isles of Scilly. 49 degrees north, 6 degrees west, 45 kilometres southwest of mainland Cornwall. Population 2,100. Five inhabited islands of 140 in total. Last month we headed to subarctic Shetland. This month we find ourselves in a subtropical paradise. The most southwesterly point in Britain, the palm-fringed Isles of Scilly, are a tiny archipelago of green and granite, rising just from the blue Atlantic. Sailing from Land's End, you'd be forgiven for missing them altogether. If you did, it would be another 2,000 miles of ocean before making landfall in Newfoundland, Canada. The island's sunny weather, white sand beaches and abundant wildlife make them a popular holiday destination in the warmer months. But surrounded by the Gulf Stream and the temperate ocean, the islands rarely experience true cold. Despite the ever more frequent storms that roar in from the Atlantic each winter, even the cold month of February is exceptionally mild on Scilly. This mild weather means that almost anything grows there, and the islanders have long been good at making the most of their local specialities. In the 1870s, an enterprising Silonian sent a box of wild narcissi to Covent Garden Flower Market, and London was so impressed that Scilly's flower farming industry sprung up virtually overnight. Scilly narcissi are planted in late summer, and begin to grow with the first autumn rains, blooming sweetly from October to March. The farms are generally family-owned. The colourful fields are small, around a quarter of an acre, and thickly hedged to protect from storms. Many varieties are grown, including local ones such as Silly Valentine, Hughtown and Winston Churchill, whose namesake allowed the Salonians to keep growing flowers during the Second World War, when land elsewhere was being requisitioned for food. Each stem may have up to 15 exquisitely scented blooms, so delicate that they must be cut by hand. And if you like the exquisite scent of Narcissus, it might be a good time to become a Fern Ledger member, though that's all I can say for now. Garden task, sow chilies. The urge to sow is strong this month, as daylight hours increase in leaps and bounds, and we keenly sniff out any hint of spring. But despite our bones convincing us otherwise, it is way too early in the most part. Seeds sown into the cold ground will rot away, and tender plants sown indoors this early will grow leggy, drawn and weak, long before they can safely be planted out. Chilies are the exception. 
Get hold of the catalogue of a specialist seed nursery and fully indulge those spring-like urges here. They need an epic growing season and move slowly and with a naturally bushy habit, so will grow perfectly well indoors until the weather adequately warms. Start them off one or two seeds to a pot on a warm, sunny windowsill. There are a few tricks to success with a chilli. Pot it into a slightly larger pot before it really needs it. They grow in response to root roominess and will be content with smallness if their pot is small. You must also resist any temptation to pinch out the growing tip in order to make it bushier. This is always the point from which the first fruit is born and you will set first cropping back by weeks if you do. It is bushy enough. And finally, they need to bask in warmth and protection from the elements all summer long, ideally in a greenhouse. You will be rewarded for your early start in fiery fruits all through late summer. You may wish to pause the podcast here for a moment while you find somewhere warm and quiet to close your eyes, sit back and settle down just for a minute into this month's found sound. The Mendip Hills, Somerset. The day is wet, rain pouring out of the sky. This is most of what you will hear, but listen out for a dog in the distance, evidence that others, too, are out in the weather. February's Perfume Ingredient This month in Fern's Somerset studio, the team are captivated by tiny, snail-like ombrette seeds. Also known as muskmallow, the aromatic ombrette plant is native to India. It has pale yellow, hibiscus-like flowers with purple centres. Here are found its furry seed pods, containing several of the kidney bean-shaped seeds. These are dried before undergoing steam distillation to produce the essential oil used in perfumery. I love ambrette, not least because it makes a wonderful plant-based alternative to musk, cutting out the cruel and senseless trade in musk derived from animals. It is complex and earthy, a grown-up scent, 
a bass note in Fern's Winter 23, and Brett here takes on a forest floor dimension, contrasting richly with herbal top notes of rosemary and tarragon. The Wedding of the Birds Valentine's Day wasn't always what it is now. A saint's day, it was never really associated with love until the medieval period, when another name for Valentine's Day, the Wedding of the Birds, inspired one of our greatest poets, Geoffrey Chaucer. Chaucer is known, of course, for the Canterbury Tales, but one of his stranger works is the Parliament of Fowls, a dream vision in which the narrator, while reading Cicero, falls fast asleep and dreams of a gathering of birds who meet on St Valentine's Day to choose their mates for the year. This was a popular superstition, related to the beginning of the breeding season for birds in early spring, but it was Chaucer who confirmed Valentine's Day as a day for lovers. After this, Valentine's cards began to appear. The first we have found dates to 1477, a note from Marjorie Bruce of Norfolk to her Right well beloved Valentine. As we know, this tradition continues today, but few now think of birds. For an alternative approach, look out of your window on Valentine's Day for a spot of love telling mingled with bird watching. A blackbird means your partner will be a priest, a robin indicates they will be of the sea. If you see a goldfinch or a yellowhammer, your love will be rich, and if you see a woodpecker, you will be happy single. The Sunset February's sunsets are a little less bleak than January's, but it is still cold, it's still early, the days are still short. So once the sun has gone down on a February day, I seek comfort. I like to switch on a lamp and curl up with a good book beneath my favourite quilt. It's difficult to know when people first began quilting that is, stitching layers of fabric and wadding together in patterns. Early fragments of patchwork have been found in Asia and the Middle East, but the earliest complete quilt dates to 13th century Sicily, depicting the myth of Tristan and Isolde. It is intricate and vivid, the dark stitching against white cloth defying the centuries. If you're interested, you can see the Tristan quilt alongside earlier fragments in the V&A's collection in London. Though quilting has long been used like mine as a bed cover, it is also useful for garments in that it is warm and light and can be finished with great style and intricacy. On a practical note, quilting was worn beneath armour, or indeed in place of metal armour for those who could not afford better. But for the wealthy and fashion-conscious, elaborately embroidered quilting made for a fine show. Most popular in Britain in the 17th century, quilting was both made here and imported from India's workshops. Quilting was both shipped in from Britain's colonies and exported to them. North America's lively tradition of patchwork quilting began this way, for the pioneers, many of whom lived in great hardship, Patchwork was economical, using up scraps of fabric that could not be used elsewhere. Later, enslaved African-American women often became very skilled quilt makers. 
some of their lives would come to depend upon it. Harriet Tubman used quilting patterns as codes to guide enslaved people to freedom on the Underground Railroad. And the making of quilts as part of the struggle for civil rights has continued ever since. The Moon February's full moon is known as the Snow Moon, Ice Moon or Storm Moon. It falls on the 5th of February at 6.29pm. The full moon rises near sunset opposite the sun, so in the east as the sun sets in the west. The moon's last quarter falls on the 13th of February at 4.01pm. The last quarter rises around midnight and is at its highest point as the sun rises. The new moon falls on the 20th of February at 7.06am. This month's new moon is in Aquarius. Astrologers believe that the new moon is a quiet, contemplative time before a phase of growth. Each new moon has its own energy, depending on the zodiacal sign that it is in, and the Aquarius new moon is said to rule our intuition, innovation and psychic state. The new moon rises at sunrise in the same part of the sky as the sun, and so cannot be seen. And the first quarter falls on the 27th of February at 8.06am. The first quarter rises near noon and is at its highest point as the sun sets. A February rain shower, chill and bleak. You duck into an old inn hearing the sound of singing. You shake out your coat, perch at the bar and settle in to listen. The song is called Ambechigan, which means a few songs. And the singer is talking about how singing for them is very therapeutic and keeps their heart from going under the wave and going under the dark clouds. And for them it's a way to create joy when it's dark and when the days are still very, very short and it's cold. Some warmth can come out from having a few songs now and then. Am bechigan a geitu vymron Rhag sydd o i lawr dan amal i ton Mae'r awen mor siriol, mor swynol, mor lan Diolch Ambechigan drid wylliwch yn os Mor olau ar dydd, mor siriol ar hos Caddigol an o baith, gymylau fel glan Y tyro antos Bye.
Gigan. A gavan bit on Tathia Vulats in Ganigit. A gweti imatail ranial and lan. Go paintia of Galcani. Thank you for listening to this month's episode. A new episode is released on the first of each month. Please do like, subscribe and share. We love hearing your thoughts and how and when you like to listen. If you enjoyed this podcast, you will also enjoy my book, The Almanac, A Seasonal Guide to 2023, which this year is themed around the solar system and the signs of the zodiac. It's also available as an audiobook, Read by me, Leah Landertz. You can also follow along with the seasons with a membership to Ferns Organic Fragrances. One bottle of each season's fragrance is made to order for the names on the Fern Production Ledger. Though the ledger is currently full, you can join the waiting list by visiting fern.co, linked in the podcast description. Each bottle is sent with a sample vial allowing you to try the fragrance before deciding whether or not to keep the main bottle. If it's not quite right for you, the bottle can be returned free of charge for a full refund, and you can always skip a season if you need a little break. The ledger allows Fern to plan ahead, reducing waste and creating space to focus on creative projects, such as this podcast. The podcast is produced by Jeff Bird. Catriona Bolt is the researcher, working in-house as part of the Fern Studio team. In addition to my own contributions, Zoe Gilbert, author of Mischief Acts, wrote and read The Herbarium. Alice Boyd is the composer and sound recordist who is travelling the UK through the year to make field recordings for each month's found sounds. And the folk song and introduction were played by Welsh musician Willem Bowen Rees.